Hello and welcome to the June 21st, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about what's new in the journal since our last podcast. Let's get started. A new commentary offers guidance to healthcare workers who may come in contact with patients with monkeypox. The authors write that although monkeypox is unlikely to reach the pandemic spread of COVID-19, Physicians and other healthcare workers must be vigilant with a high index of suspicion and careful adherence to appropriate infection control precautions as the current monkeypox outbreak unfolds. Monkeypox is a virus that belongs to the orthopox virus genus of the Poxviridae family, which also includes smallpox and cowpox viruses. The authors advise that healthcare workers should follow the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines to protect themselves and safely manage a case of monkeypox. The guidelines include recommendations to wear personal protective equipment, use approved disinfectants, not engage in procedures that aerosolize the virus, and engage in careful contact tracing to prevent further spread. They advise that careful management of monkeypox cases as healthcare workers encounter them will prevent monkeypox from adding to the ongoing staffing shortages. They stress that because COVID-19 has already depleted public health resources and public desire to engage in risk mitigation, public health workers and healthcare workers are exhausted. They add that the prospect of addressing a new communicable pathogen may add to their existing stress and add that this should be acknowledged and mitigated however possible. They also caution that infection control response must avoid stigmatizing the most affected patient population and should itself ally itself with the community of men who have sex with men to combat monkeypox. Next is a randomized control trial comparing spinal versus general anesthesia for hip surgery that found that spinal anesthesia was associated with worse pain immediately after surgery and higher rates of pain reliever prescriptions at 60 days. However, differences in pain, satisfaction, and mental status between the two interventions diminished at 60, 180, and 365 days after surgery. More than 250,000 older adults experience a hip fracture every year, and nearly all hip fractures are repaired with surgery. Patient recovery of ambulation and survival at 60 days, delirium and hospital length of stay, were shown to be similar regardless of type of anesthesia in a primary analysis of this trial. Researchers from the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine, conducted a prepanned secondary analysis of the trial comparing spinal versus general anesthesia in 1,600 patients aged 50 years or older who were having hip fracture surgery. Trial participants were randomly assigned to general or spinal anesthesia and the researchers collected data on pain on days one to three after surgery. Pain and use of prescription pain relievers, mental status, and patient satisfaction were assessed at 60, 180, and 365 days following surgery. The researchers found that patients who received spinal anesthesia reported worse pain in the 24 hours after surgery, but reported similar pain at all other time points. They also found that 25% of patients in the spinal anesthesia group were using prescription pain relievers at 60 days compared to 18.8% of patients in the general anesthesia group. However, the authors note that they did not find differences in pain satisfaction or mental status after 60, 180, or 365 days. An accompanying editorial notes that the study challenges a dominant narrative about the risks and outcomes of general anesthesia in older adults. 
The study highlights that surgical repair of hip fractures in older adults carries risk for severe post-operative pain, regardless of whether the surgery is done with regional or general anesthesia. Since 1996, 37 states have legalized the use of medical cannabis, and 18 have legalized the use of recreational cannabis in adults. The ongoing conflict between state legalization and federal restriction creates medical and legal uncertainty for both users and clinicians. In the next article I'll highlight, researchers from University of Michigan Medical School analyzed medical cannabis program registry data from Washington, D.C. and 35 states to describe recent trends in medical cannabis licensure in the United States. The authors found that between 2016 and 2020, the national number of patients enrolled in medical cannabis programs increased from 678,408 in 2016 to 2,974,433 in 2020. Chronic pain is the most common patient-reported qualifying condition accounting for 60.6% of all available data. Post-traumatic stress disorder was the second most common patient-reported qualifying condition, accounting for 10.6% of total use. The authors note that these conditions were more common in medical use-only states, while in states allowing recreational use, patients reported higher percentages of use due to multiple sclerosis, arthritis, and chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. According to the authors, their findings highlight the value of aligned federal and state cannabis regulation. They note that changing federal Schedule I designation for cannabis would provide opportunities to create regulation that would improve state policies and labeling and potency testing, clarify legal and medical discrepancies, and ensure appropriate training for dispensary employees and healthcare professionals. In a new Beyond the Guidelines feature, a preventive cardiologist and a general internist discuss their approach to the use of statins for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease and apply the guidelines to a real patient who participates in the discussion that occurred in the Department of Medicine Grand Rounds at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Like all Beyond the Guidelines articles, this one includes print, video, and an opportunity to earn CME and MFC credit. Prevention and management of HIV infection is the topic of this month's In the Clinic Review. The review addresses meaningful improvements in the ability to prevent HIV infection with new drug combinations for pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent HIV, new rapid tests for HIV screening, and the preferred drug combinations for starting people newly diagnosed with HIV infection on treatment. Go to annals.org to read the review and earn CME and MOC credit by completing the accompanying quiz. In January 2022, the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company launched an online pharmacy selling more than 100 generic prescription drugs at the cost of ingredients and manufacturing, plus a 15% profit margin, $3 pharmacy dispensing fee, and a $5 shipping charge. In a brief report, researchers compared the price of 89 generic drugs sold by the Mark Cuban Company to the price Medicare paid in 2020. They found that Medicare could have saved up to $3.6 billion, or 37% of total spending, on 77 generic drugs if it purchased generic drugs in the maximum quantity supplied by the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company. If Medicare had purchased drugs in the minimum quantity available from the company, it could have saved $1.7 billion, or 18% of total spending, on 42 drugs. These findings suggest that Medicare is overpaying for some generic drugs. 
According to the authors, lower drug prices from direct consumer model highlight inefficiencies in the current generic pharmaceutical distribution and reimbursement system, which includes wholesalers, pharmacy benefit managers, pharmacies, and insurers. They add that policy reforms that improve price transparency, increase competition for high-cost generic drugs, prevent annual price increases, and limit pharmacy and distribution costs could increase affordability of essential generic medicines for all Americans. The current physician payment system does not adequately address the socioeconomic factors that impact patients' health outcomes. A new American College of Physicians policy position paper proposes how new payment models should be designed to better account for social drivers that impact patient health. Among the ACP recommendations are the following. Healthcare system reform so that payment models should advance and support high-value primary and comprehensive care and health equity rather than the volume of services provided. Medicare and other payers should adopt population-based prospective payment models for primary and comprehensive care that are structured and sufficient to ensure access to needed care and address the needs of individuals who are experiencing healthcare disparities and inequities. Research about how to best measure the cost of caring for patients who are experiencing disparities. And reinvestment of savings into primary and preventive care, as well as into social and public health services. Go to annals.org for all the recommendations and their rationale. Next is a study that found that new azathioprine users with the RS2814778CC genotype variant had higher rates of azathioprine discontinuation due to hematopoietic toxicity than persons without this variant. The variant is found in approximately half of Americans with recent African descent and causes lower white blood cell counts without increased risk of infection, also known as benign neutropenia. Azathioprine is an immunosuppressant used to treat conditions including lupus and inflammatory bowel disease and has been associated with adverse effects, primarily hematopoietic toxicity. It has been observed that black patients discontinued use of azathioprine for toxicity at a higher rate than white patients. The current study hypothesized that this difference was associated with the presence of the RS2814778CC genotype variant independent of patient self-identified race. The researchers studied data for 1,466 new azathioprine users. They found that the presence of the variant was associated with the difference in thiopurine discontinuation and tolerated dose across multiple disease settings. They note that the normal cell counts that clinicians typically use in decisions about dose and need to discontinue azathioprine are primarily derived from patients of European ancestry. They conclude that basing decisions for many black patients based on low leukocyte counts rather than on genotype could trigger unnecessary discontinuation or inappropriately low dosing of azathioprine. Based on the results, the authors recommend that clinicians consider genetic testing in patients before azathioprine initiation or if leukopenia is detected while a patient is using azathioprine. Also new is a research and reporting methods article describing improvements in a tool used to evaluate prognostic accuracy studies and a commentary that proposes incorporating routine social risk screening in clinical practice. This month, the Annals Consult Guys episode discusses the importance of considering patient frailty in preoperative evaluation. Finally, as we await the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade, 
There is a very timely on being a doctor essay that illustrates the devastating consequences of lack of access to safe termination of unintended pregnancy. The essay is titled, I Remember Marjorie, and whatever your position on abortion, I encourage you to read it. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope I've enticed you to go to annals.org to read some of the new material I've mentioned. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.